I greet you all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is wonderful to be with you this evening. And if there's ever a time that you need to get up and stretch, go get water, this would be the time. So if you need to get up and stretch, everyone's fine then? Okay, great. It's a blessing to be with you all, and I hope that our series that we've been having for the past two years have been, has been beneficial for you, and you have uh, greatly appreciated all that's been taught. The, from the outset, let me um, repeat the words of Augustine who says this, There are others whose concept of God, such as he is, ascribes him the nature and moods of the human spirit. There are those whose concept of God, as such as it is, ascribes him, to the, nat- ascribes him the nature and moods of the human spirit, a mistake which ties their arguments about God to distorted and misleading rules of interpretation. If someone was to ask you, brother, sister, friend, family, explain to me who God is, what exactly would you say? Now, the common answer that many of us would give is, well, God is love, and God is merciful, God is gracious, God is holy, He is sovereign, He is powerful, He is glorious. Now, those answers that describe God are not bad. In fact, they're correct. God is holy, God is loving, right? God is glorious, But a lot of times, like Augustine said here, we tend to describe God in ways that are likened to our comprehension. So we speak about a God in ways that, that, that are more, that, that better, that best suit Him. And, and that best, um, describe Him in ways that are easy for us to explain. We can explain God's love. Oh, in some sense we can. We can explain God being glorious. We can explain God being holy, holy other. However, let's say you was to ask that question to someone in the early church. Let's say you were to ask that question to someone from the 14th, 15th, 16th century. What type of answer would they give you? And the answer that they would give you is not the answer that we give now. The answer that we give now is an answer that in a lot of ways strips God from essentially who he is, his being. Other writers say that now our modern thinking of God is we have domesticated God's transcendence. We have stripped God away away from, from all that he is. No longer do we speak about God who is simple. Our God who is immutable. 
or God who, or the aseity of God, the, the, the self-sufficiency of God. No longer do we speak about God who is triune. And the reason is because those in our day, we think, are abstract concepts that are left for the ivory tower theologians and the, the Christian philosophers. We don't need to get into that because those things in and of itself don't really mean anything. They don't have any general application for us as Christians. So we speak about God's love and God's mercy and God's grace. Friends, what we want to do tonight is begin to recover the doctrine of God. Not necessarily that it's been lost, because the doctrine of God, a theology proper, the way we speak about God, has not been lost. But what we want to do is we want to speak about God and teach you ways of how you can speak about God that are right and how you can speak about God that are wrong. Mind you, this whole series, I'm not going to teach you about God because I can't teach you about God. Because I can't comprehend God, nor can you. However, I can apprehend who God is. And I can teach you ways about speaking about God that are right, and ways that are about speaking about God that are wrong. And that's the whole aim of this series of the doctrine of God. We are now leaving the, the series that we have been in for the past two years of the doctrine of the church. And now we are set selling our boats into the mysterious doctrine of God. And mind you, the more, and you will know quickly, the more you start to understand or the more you start to learn about God, the deeper your knowledge is of God, the more mysterious he begins to become. But that's okay. That's all right. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us here by your grace. I pray, Father, that through this series you will be glorified, that your Son will be glorified, that the Holy Spirit will be glorified. We ask all of this, Lord. We ask that you will, will help us understand who you are, not just tonight, but for the rest of eternity. We ask all of this in your name. Amen. And Matthew, you don't have to turn there, Matthew 28 Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. From the outset of the start of our new series, I want to make the words of Augustine my own. So I quote Augustine here. From now on, I will be attempting to say things that cannot altogether be said as they are thought by a man or at least as they are thought by me. In any case, when we think about God the Trinity, we are aware that our thoughts are quite inadequate to their object and incapable of grasping him as he is. Therefore, I ask him to help me understand and explain what I have in mind and depart any blunders that I may make, for I am aware of my own willingness and weakness. That is what I pray. And that is what I ask. That the things I'm going to speak about tonight are things that I know do not fully capture God and who He is. 
As one theologian once said, you can touch the sun, but you can't grasp the sun. You can touch who God is, but you can't necessarily grasp and fully comprehend who God is. The doctrine of the Trinity is without question the most mysterious and perplexing doctrine in all of theology. And one of the reasons is because the doctrine of the Trinity requires us to think in ways that are far beyond our comprehension. We are forced by Scripture and Scripture alone to say things and use terms that we don't normally use to describe God, and yet we are very aware, to steal the words of Augustine, that our own thoughts are quite inadequate to our, to our object and incapable of grasping him as he is. The doctrine of the Trinity, as mysterious as it may be, is without question the core doctrine of the Christian faith. Herman Bobbing said this concerning the Trinity. The entire Christian belief system, all of special revelation, stands or falls with the confession of God's Trinity. It is the core of Christian faith, the root of all dogmas, the basic content of the new covenant. Saints, the doctrine of the Trinity is what sets us apart from all other religions. The doctrine of the Trinity is what makes Christianity unique. Augustine said, in no other subject is error more dangerous. In no other subject other than the doctrine of the Trinity is error more dangerous. If one doesn't believe in the Trinity, then one isn't saved. If one gets one aspect of the Trinity wrong, then one is a heretic. Holding to the classical orthodox view of the Trinity is like walking down a tight rope. And we balance ourselves with the biblical descriptions of who God is. One God in Trinity, Trinity in unity. We must hold on and confess that there is only one true God, and Scripture identifies as God three who are distinct. Can anyone name them? Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are that one God. And these three are co-equal and co-eternal in their divinity. Now, those are hard sayings to wrap our finite minds around. And many throughout the centuries have tried to give their best attempt in making the doctrine of the Trinity more easier to digest and more easier to explain. Whether that be Arius, who claimed that the Son was not eternal, but was created by the Father, or Sibelian, who believed that God took on different roles or modes throughout history, or the various examples that people try to explain um, when they are trying to explain the Trinity. You might have heard of some. The Trinity is like an egg. In one egg, you have the white, the yolk, and the shell composing of one egg. Or the Trinity is like water. Water has three states, solid, liquid, and gas. Although the water changes forms, it is still H2O. Just as water changes forms, so too the Trinity. Or the Trinity is like a three-leaf clover. There are three different cloves that represent the three different persons of the Trinity. Friends, all easy explanations cannot, and hear this, will not ever account for the uniqueness of the triune God. 
There is no explanation that will ever account for the uniqueness of the triune God. All fall short, and quite honestly, all are heretical. Tonight, my aim is not to make the doctrine of the Trinity any less mysterious to you. In fact, I hope to make the doctrine more mysterious, because when we begin to compromise who God is, then we are no longer within the bounds of who the Bible describes God as. So tonight, I have two points I would like for us to consider. The first is the biblical witness to Trinitarianism, and the second is the historical witness to Trinitarianism. The biblical witness to Trinitarianism and the historical witness to Trinitarianism. And I want to say, before we start, is anyone cold? Can we turn that down a little bit because my hands are freezing? That would be great. Thank you, Pastor. Let's first, let's look at the first point, the biblical witness to Trinitarianism. The biblical witness to Trinitarianism. Now, before we begin this point, and if you're taking notes, or if you can keep them in your head, there are a few words I'm going to be saying that you'll need to know, that are going to help us out as we walk through this doctrine of the Trinity. The first is essence. Essence. Okay? Essence. Now, essence means the same thing as being. Right? We all have essence. Our essence is... Anyone can name what our essence is? Our essence is, is our humanity. That is our essence. That is our being. Um, the essence, our essence is what we are. The next is substance. Substance. And substance is the stuff that you consist of. The stuff that you are made of. Substance. The third is nature. Nature. That nature is what makes us distinct. So our human nature is what makes us distinct from animals, right? So nature, substance, essence, or you can call that being, and person, person. Person is who you are, person, who you are. So when trying to learn the doctrine of the Trinity, now that we have those definitions defined for us, when trying to learn the doctrine of the Trinity, there are three pillars that we must get right. There are three pillars of the doctrine of the Trinity, three foundations of the doctrine of the Trinity that we must get right. So what I want to do is I want to first give a biblical case for monotheism, the belief that there is one God. We can call that sub-point number one, okay? Then we'll look at each person of the Godhead being fully God, which is the second pillar foundation, um, each person of the Godhead being fully God or fully God. We can call that subpoint number two. And then we'll look at how these three persons are being fully God are distinct. Okay? How these three persons are fully God yet are distinct from one another. We can call that subpoint number three. So subpoint number one, God is one. Subpoint number two, would be each person of the Godhead is fully God. And sub-point number three is each person of the Godhead is distinct. Okay? So let's look at the first sub-point, which is the biblical case for monotheism. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. We believe that there is one 
God. As opposed to many who are pantheists, who believe that everything is God, or who are polytheists, who believe in a multitude of gods, we, as Christians, believe in one, one singular God. Now, our first example we see of monotheism is the story of Abraham. Abraham lived in a place where the practice of worshiping multiple gods was common. In fact, in Joshua 20, 24, it says that Abraham worshipped false idols. But in Genesis 12, God calls out Abraham, who was Abram at the time, to leave his country to a land that he will show him. And what we see in the story of Abraham is as he leaves his country that's full of paganism and, and, and worshipping false gods, polytheism, he comes to worship and comes to the knowledge of the one true God, Yahweh. If you know anything about Samaria and Mesopotamia you, and the history of what's happening in Abraham's time, you know that who they were worshipping at the time were the moon, the sun, cows, whatever. So the, the worship of God, of many gods, was prevalent in that day. And God calls out Abraham out of this polytheism religion to monotheism, one God. We see monotheism revealed to us in the story of Israel. Israel was taught time and time again that there was one God, one true God. Deuteronomy 6, 4, 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one, singular. This confession, known as the Shema, was central to Israel's faith. It is what every little boy and what every little Jewish girl was to memorize. They were supposed to uh, talk about this as they walked, uh, walked, on, walked uh, along the, the way and, and when they lied down and when they got up. That the Lord God is one. In fact, the oneness of God, the singularity of God, monotheism is what distinguished Israel's faith from all others in that day who worshipped many gods. Deuteronomy 4.35, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. And hear this, there is no one besides him. Isaiah 45.5, I am the Lord, there is none other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. Malachi 2.10 Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? 1 Corinthians 8.6 Yet for us there is one God, the Father, for whom all things and from all things exist. Ephesians 4.6 One God, one Father of all. James 2.19 Hear this, you believe that God is one, you do well. And hear this, even the demons believe. So, so this idea of monotheism, one God, is not just for Christians, but also the demons know that there is only one God. Romans 3.30, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So we see here, verse after verse, the scriptures telling us that God is one. Our confession begins in chapter 2 of God and the Holy Trinity, saying this, The Lord our God is one, only living and true God. Friends, this is the first foundation of the Trinity. If you don't get this right, then you don't get the rest right. 
This is what we can't get wrong. We worship one God, not three different gods, but one God. Now let's look at sub point number two, which is each person of the Godhead is fully God. Each person of the Godhead is fully God. We worship one God, yet that one God eternally exists in three distinct persons. Three, three distinct persons who are fully God. And this is the second, and the second pillar is usually where people have the hardest time reconciling in their heads. Because it's hard for us to grasp, or because it, just because it's hard for us to grasp, doesn't mean that it isn't true. In fact, like I said earlier, no one can fully understand the being of God other than God himself. That is important to understand. No one can understand God except God himself. As our confession says, whose essence, whose being cannot be comprehended but by any but himself. We must get this second pillar correct in spite of our minds being limited to comprehend. So what we see in Scripture is one God, and Scripture identifies as God three who are distinct, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now let's look at some verses that speak of the Father as God. Um, you don't have to write all of these down, because this is a no-brainer. No one disputes over this, that the Father is God. But let me just give you some Scripture references. 1 Corinthians 8.6 Yet for us there is one God, the Father. Yet, yet for us there was one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and from whom we exist. Ephesians 4, 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Matthew 23, 9, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one Father who is in heaven. Who sits in heaven? Only God does. Psalm 68, 5, Father of the fatherless and protectors of the widows. Who is that? It is God in his holy habitation. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it is clear from these verses that the Father is God, right? Simple. He's 100% God. Um, and there is no real dispute, like I said, um, within people who don't hold to uh, necessarily an orthodox view of the Trinity, they would say, they have to confess that the Father is God. Okay? Now let's look at verses that describe Jesus Christ as God. Jesus Christ as God. And some of these I'm going to add some commentary. John 10.30 says this, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Here Christ says that he is equal with the Father. He and the Father, and let's go back to our, our uh, terms that we laid out in the beginning, he and the Father share in the same essence, substance, being, of the same nature. Okay? The Nicene Creed put it this way, Jesus Christ being of one substance, with the Father. Whatever makes up the Father, his godness, right? Christ has that. Jesus has that. The Son has that. <clears throat> Jesus Christ being one substance with the Father, which means that Jesus is in the same, is the same in being nature, essence, or substance as the Father. Uh, just as our children 
are as fully human as we are, right? We share our humanity with our children, right? Or maybe some of you don't. Um, we are, we share our humanity with our children. Jesus, the eternally begotten Son, is just as God as the Father. So just as the Father is God, the Son is God. He shares, um, equal godness with the Father. He is equal in the godness of the Father. Just as Jesus is not like God, uh, he is not lesser than God, he is God. He shares in the same essence or being as God. Mind you, God doesn't have necessarily an essence. Right? God doesn't have existence. What we would say is God's essence and existence are the same. God is his essence. He is his, 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 his existence. We'll get into that when we talk about simplicity. Um, this also, when, when Christ says that I and the Father are one, also points to the unity, the unity that exists within the Godhead. Though these three are distinct, they are united. Uh, look at John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, being Christ, was with God in the beginning. Then the Apostle John takes it a little step further and he says, And the Word was God. The Word was God. Jesus was not only with the Father in the beginning, but is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. Jesus is God. Jesus is fully God. Paul, speaking of Christ, says this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. For in him, hear this, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In, for in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity, the whole, the whole essence of who God is, of what makes God to be God, his godness, is in Christ, is in Jesus. And you have been filled with him, who is the head of rule and authority. Again, Colossians 1, Verse 15 through 20, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And in him, every, and in him everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth. Earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So here we have a clear description, a very vivid description of Jesus Christ as God, the Son as God. Verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God. Verse 16, he's said to be creator of all. Verse 17, he's eternal and holds all things together. Verse 18, he's the head of the church, the first fruits of a royal harvest. Verse 19, in Christ, all the fullness, all the fullness of whatever it means to be God, dwells in Christ. Dwells in the Son, I should say. Verse 20, through Christ we have peace with God. Jesus is fully God. Remember the story of Thomas when he sees the risen Christ. What does he say? My Lord and my God. Thomas addressed Jesus as Lord. The title Lord here takes us back to the covenant name of God in the Old Testament. 
Yahweh. So when Thomas sees Jesus, he's saying, my Yahweh, my God. Jesus is truly God. Thomas worshiped Jesus as Jehovah Yahweh. Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God. Who's this God? Who, who's this wonderful God that, are, that is going to appear? Jesus Christ. John 10, 30, verse 30 and 33, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. But hear this. The Jews pick up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, it is not for a good work that you're going to stone, well, we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Why? Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Matthew, I think about the, the Pharisees of the day had a better understanding of when Christ says, I and the Father are one, than many of the cults and heretics of this day. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. That's something to think about. Uh, Matthew 14.33, after Christ had walked on water and, claimed, and calmed the storm, his disciples said this, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The Son of God. That title, Son of God, simply means to be God. To be the Son of God is to be of the same nature as God. Is to share in the same substance as God. The Son of God is of God. Okay? Last one, John, 1 John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come, has come and has given us understanding that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In this and his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God. This, this one that came is the true God and eternal life. Only God can give eternal life. Jesus gives eternal life to those who place their faith in him. So clearly from these biblical texts, Jesus is co-equal and co-eternal with, with the Father, which simply means that Jesus is God. The Son is the Son, we have to also make a distinction, though. The Son is not the Father, however, and the Father is not the Son. They are distinct persons. Both are distinct, yet both are truly and fully God. If you deal with, if you deal with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, this would be something good to bring out. Okay? A little cheat sheet or something when they come to your door. Um, now let's look at some verses that show the Holy Spirit as God. Okay? That show the Holy Spirit as being fully God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out form, without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And hear this, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here we have in creation the Holy Spirit mentioned. As we see in this passage, the Spirit was present in the beginning before the universe was made. He was the power that hovered over the watery chaos and over the darkness. What, 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 unites, what unites the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Simple answer, their nature. And usually when, what, what helps us or how we distinguish one's nature is by their activity. So what we see in, in, in the nature of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is they all are doing the same thing, primarily in creation and in redemption. Okay? That's how we know that they are linked together because they are mentioned at the two greatest events in history, creation and redemption. 
Acts 5, which I think is the, which is the un, the unrefutable, or irrefutable, whatever, um, um, passage that describes the Holy Spirit being fully deity, fully God. Acts chapter 5, verse 3 through 4 says this, hear this, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep you back from yourself, part from the proceeds, proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? And hear this, you have not lied to a man, but to God. Peter, Peter tells Ananias that whom she has lied to is not some force, right? As Jehovah's Witnesses would say. Not, not someone who, who, um, who is necessarily just the spirit of God, There's no, who's no pers- who's, who doesn't have no personal distinction. The person you lie to is indeed God. He says in verse 3, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And at the end, he identifies who the Holy Spirit is. You have not lied to man, but to God. That makes sense? In John 14, 16, Jesus tells his disciples, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit another helper, which translate in, translates in the Greek, another like himself. Another like himself. Another of the same being, of the same, again, substance, essence, nature. Okay? Matthew 28, at the Great Commission, Jesus tells his disciples in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus here shows co-equality, the co-equality that exists within the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is co-equal with the Son and the Father. How do we baptize? In what name do we baptize in? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here we see in subpoint number two, based off the biblical witness of Scripture, that there are three persons within the Godhead who are fully God. Fully God. It's not that the Father is one-third God, and the Son is one-third God, and the Holy Spirit is one-third God, and they all make up one God. Each are fully God. Robert Lethem says, when the church says that the Son or the Holy Spirit is fully God, that means that the whole being of God, without remainder is in each person all that is in God. All that is ever to be said to be God without dilution without or subtraction constitutes the person of the Son and in turn the person of the Spirit, just as it is with the person of the Father. Whatever is in the Father, whatever makes up the substance, the essence of the Father, that is God, Christ or the Son and the Holy Spirit have that. Each person of the Trinity, when considered in himself, is absolutely 100% God, and at the same time, 100% of God is in the person. Now let's look at the last pillar, which is each person within the Godhead are distinct. Based off the scriptures that we read, it's clear that each person, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, are distinct. The, The Bible speaks of the Father as God, Jesus Christ as God, and the Holy Spirit as God. These are not three beings of God, right? There is one being. That is to say that there, that these are, uh, these, that is to say that these three are not three separate gods. They are three divine persons. Three divine persons that all share deity, that all share godness. You might say, well, how is that possible? 
You might be thinking at this point, my head is just spinning. Uh, my hamster and my head stopped a long time ago. Uh, thank you, Ophelia, for raising your hand. Um, you might be saying, how is this possible? How can there be one God, but each person of the Godhead is fully God? That doesn't make any sense. Doesn't that mean that there are three gods? Well, to help answer that question, we must first differentiate between being and person. We must make a distinction between being and person. Everything that exists has being. You have being, I have being, that chair has being, that pole has being. Everything has being. Your being is limited to this space right now. You can't be somewhere else that you, if you wanted to. Um, your being is also limited to time. Your being is finite and limited, right? Also, your being is shared with one person, yourself. I can't be you, you can't be me, right? Your being is what you are. And the person, and hear this, is who you are. Your being is what you are. Your person is who you are. Okay? God's being is infinite, eternal, and is fully shared with three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are fully God, each co-equal in deity and co-eternal. One what, three who's. One what, and three who's. And if you want more on that, you have to go to the narrow road when we speak on (laughs) chapter 2. Also, these three persons are distinct from one another. Like I said, since the Father sent the Son into the world, He cannot be the same person as the Son. Likewise, after the Son returned to the Father, the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit can't be the Father and the Son, right? There are three different persons. The distinctions within the persons can also be viewed in the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Consider the words of the Athanasian Creed. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten, begotten from any anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. We, we loved... Many times when, we, when people try to make distinctions within the Godhead, they tend to speak about the roles of the, 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 the triune God um, when we consider uh, redemption. So we say the Father plans, the Son comes and executes the plan, and the Holy Spirit applies the plan. Have you guys ever heard that? We call that the economic trinity, okay? However, that's not how necessarily we should dis- make distinctions between the person's of the Godhead. The personal distinctions, and write this if you have take, if you're taking notes, the personal distinction within the persons of the Trinity is found in unbegottenness, begottenness, and procession. The personal distinction within the persons of the Trinity is found in unbegottenness, begottenness, and procession. The Father is unbegotten. The Son is eternally begotten from the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the son we don't want and also we don't want to think of the father begetting the son as how husbands beget children or as males beget children right how we don't want to think of it that way it's a supernatural begetting right someone um someone would say or one theologian said that isn't it is an ad intra work meaning it's a personal work that the father does in eternity past 
that we don't, that none of us can explain. But mind you, if you go to the narrow road, then I will take my best stab at it. I'm just trying to hype up the narrow road um, as if we need any more people. Um, But there is a unique relationship. There is a unique relationship between each person of the Godhead. These relations of generation and procession distinguish the persons from one another. That's important to know. Um, these relations of generation and procession distinguish the persons from one another. So what we have learned so far is that there is one God, there is one being who is God, and Scripture identifies as God three who are distinct, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three persons are co-equal and co-eternal in their divinity. Each are fully God. That's that tightrope that you have to stay on. And if you start tampering with any of that that I just said, then you, then you run into the risk of, of being a heretic. That's why, that's why the doctrine of the Trinity, as mysterious as it may be and as unable as it may be for us to comprehend, we must affirm all of these things. And we have to always come back to, to the foundational truth that even though I can't comprehend it, God does. Now, before we close this point, I want to I want to give I want to speak about the various verses that we see in the Bible that point us to the Trinity. This can also be known as the triadic pattern in the Bible. Um, the triadic pattern. <clears throat> what we see in the triadic pattern or the triadic formula, we see all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned. Okay, so the first verse and it's very clear is Matthew chapter three, which is the baptism of Jesus. And we see all three persons of the Trinity here. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says this, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens opened up to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and he coming to rest on him. Guys, uh, this Holy Spirit is not a dove. Just clarification. And also, too, the Holy Spirit is not an it. It's not a thing. Okay? It's a person. Um... I know you guys were com- you guys commonly used to call the Holy Spirit a you know I hope that whole, the Holy Spirit that that thing and that that it you know helps me and all that in our past previous theological life but yeah um, and behold a voice from heaven said this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased here we have Christ we have the Holy Spirit and we have the Father who is who is um, speaking of the Son. That he is well pleased. First Corinthians chapter twelve, verse six and se- verse verse four and six, verse four through six. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. It's clear the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are there who who give the gifts. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 through 6 says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7 But when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit 
of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. These triadic patterns are everywhere in the Bible, guys. Everywhere in the Bible. In the introduction to his letter to the Romans, Paul says, Paul, a, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and who was declared to be the Son of God in the power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul begins his letter to the Romans in a Trinitarian way, in a Trinitarian fashion. In fact, the whole letter of Romans is deeply Trinitarian. The author of the Hebrews considers the cross and in a triadic context. It says in uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the internal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The triadic pattern is also seen in the introduction of Peter's first letter. 1 Peter 1, 2, According to the full knowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, to the, for the obedience to Jesus Christ. According to the full knowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling of His blood. And lastly, Jude, chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, it reads, But you, beloved, building yourselves up, in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. All three persons of the Godhead are mentioned. So what we see from the triadic pattern in the Bible is God is inherently triune. God is inherently triune. Now let's look at the the historical witness of Trinitarianism. The historical witness of Trinitarianism. And if you want, at this point, uh, if you want to get up and stretch, you can. If you want to get up and, and twist your neck, that you can, then you can. That's fine. Um, I understand that many of you, or I don't understand, but I suppose many of you, this might be the first time you are hearing a concrete lesson on the Trinity. And it might be a little bit too much, but it's okay. Um, we, we want to swim in these deep waters of theology. In light of what we just learned about the God, about God, the Trinity, throughout the centuries, there have been many who have tried to make sense of the doctrine. And usually the main issue that arises within the doctrine of the Trinity surrounds around the second and third person of the Trinity. Where people have the most gripe when they're speaking about the Trinity is the Son and the Holy Spirit. It seems like after the completion of the New Testament, Christians saw it as their task to defend and explain how Jesus is one with God and how the Holy Spirit is one with God, all while maintaining that there was only one God. So the mission of the early church was trying to explain how the three persons are distinct yet are fully God, but yet there is one God. That makes sense? I know it doesn't. Um, one of the first heresies we see is known as monarchianism. Monarchianism, which is known, which uh, developed in the, in the second century. This error has to do with the nature of God. Monarchianism. It arose as it arose as an attempt to maintain monotheism, 
but also refute tritheism. Tritheism being that there are there is one there is one being, but there are also three beings. Right? They don't call they don't call the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit three persons. They call them three beings, which equals three gods. Um, Orthodox Trinitarianism says that there is one God in three persons. Not one God in three beings, one God in three persons. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are those distinct persons. Monarchians uh, were divided into two main groups. Dynamic monarchians and mortal monarchians. So the monarchians are, are categorized or divided into two groups. Okay, Dynamic monarchians and mortal monarchians. Now, dynamic monarchians and... When I explain all this, see if you can catch where the error is at. Dynamic, monarchian, dynamic monarchianism teaches that God is the Father, that Jesus is only a man. They deny the personal subsistence of, of the Son and taught that the Holy Spirit was a force or presence of God the Father. Dynamic monarchianism says that Jesus was not in his nature God. Jesus was not in his nature fully God. Okay? It is the view that God existed in Jesus, just as God exists in all of us, but that God existed in Jesus in a particular powerful way. Jesus was God because God inhabited him. Or, simply put, the Father creates Jesus. Some ancient uh, dynamic monarchianists were also known as um, adoptionists which is the teaching that Jesus was tested by God. Hear this. Jesus was tested by God, and after passing this test, and upon his baptism, he was granted supernatural powers by God and adopted as the Son. That's adoptionism. Um, The problem with that is it goes against all of the scripture, the clear scripture, that clearly identifies Jesus as fully God. When When Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, he is speaking about that, that covenant name that, 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 is, that is spoken of when, when Moses asks uh, God, who shall I say that you are? I am Yahweh. Christ is God. It's, it's not that he was created by God. And, and, and a lot of this, a lot of the, the, the heresy and a lot of uh, people's um, ability to comprehend um, Christ's is begotten of the Father. Because they, they want to think of begotten as uh, in a human sense, that God creates. So you'll have in uh, Jehovah Witness doctrine that Christ was um, created. Okay? Because they can't understand what it means to be begotten of the Father. The other group is called moral monarchianism, and you might have heard of this. Moral monarchianism, which also can be known as sabellianism, or... Modalism. Modalism. Mind you, who, anyone know the famous modalist? You guys used to listen to him? Arturo, tell me. T.D. Jakes. T.D. Jakes is a modalist. Um, I don't know if he is now, but I think he still is. Um, now, um, modalism, this heresy teaches that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are just modes Okay, just modes of a single being who is God. In other words, God um, variously manifested himself as the Father 
primarily in the Old Testament, and then other times as the Son, primarily in, uh, from Jesus' conception to his ascension, and in other times as the Holy Spirit, primarily after Jesus' ascension to heaven. Simply put, God has revealed himself in three different modes throughout history. In the Old Testament, he's the Father. In the New Testament, he's the Son. And now in this current age, he's the Holy Spirit. There is no, there is not a, there is no distinctions between the, between the persons as the Bible asserts. Um, you can also put it this way. There's one God, and then one God, he puts on, let's pretend this is the Father, he puts on the Father mask, takes off that mask. Let's pretend this is the Son, he takes off, puts on that mask, takes that off, and then he puts on the Spirit mask. Okay? And he currently right now is the Holy Spirit. He goes through different modes. The problem with modalism is, if modalism is true, and if right now God is now the Holy Spirit, then there is no one right now interceding for you at the right hand of the Father. Right? Also, too, if modalism is true, then in what sense did the Father pour out his wrath on the Son? doesn't make any sense, right? There has to be distinctions within the persons. But if God, is, if God wears the Father mask and the Son mask, then... Um, Penal substitution atonement goes right out the door, you know. So <clears throat> we next have Arianism. Arianism uh, developed around 320, and Arius taught, which is similar to what we just heard, taught that God produced the Son out of nothing, and and the Son is the first and greatest creation. That the Son is then the one who created the universe. The Son's relationship. The Son to the Father is not one of nature. The, the, one, the relationship between the Son and the Father is not one of nature, but it is an adoptive relationship. An adoptive relationship. God adopted Christ as the Son. So Christ was, crea- was a creation, and because of his great position of authority, he, w- he is to be worshipped and even looked upon as God. Looked upon as God, but not necessarily being of the same substance, essence, being of God, as God or the Father. Some Arians even held that the Holy Spirit was the first and greatest creation of the Son. In a nutshell, the Arian heresy can be summed up by Arius' own words. There once was a time when the Son was not. If you want to know, if you want Arianism in a basic nutshell, concrete um, summary, Arius says, there once was a time when the Son was not. Just think about that. There once was a time when the Son was not. Meaning Jesus was a created being with divine attributes, was, but was not in and of himself divine. By the grace of God, each of those heresies were condemned by the church as being not in line with what Scripture says about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Athanasius, and I'm just going to mention one early church father, Athanasius. If you don't know anything about Athanasius, read Athanasius. Read the story of Athanasius, and it's going to change um, your whole outlook, I think. Athanasius, who's one of the heroes of the faith, um, fought back against the Arians, who believed that the Son was a created being. Athanasius believed that the Son was not a created being, nor is like, or nor is, uh, nor is of, this, of like substance of the Father. That's what many Arians believe, that, that the Son is of like substance like substance, but not is of the same substance of the Father, okay? Rather, the Son, which we believe, is of the same substance of the Father, nor is he created. He is eternal like the Father. And as a result of, the, of Athanasius and his victory over the Roman Empire, which actually 
Athanasius fought this for 45 years. He was exiled five times by four different Roman emperors. All over this one thing, that Jesus Christ is, of, is, is not like God, is not like the Father. He is, he is God. He is of the same substance. Guys, I don't know if we would have fought that many years for this. But mind you, if Christ is like the Father, is Christ, if Christ is of like the same substance of the Father, then we have no, we have, we should not be worshiping Christ. We should not be worshiping Jesus because he is just an elevated man, but he is not God. Thank God for Athanasius though. Listen to, um, listen to the words of the Athanasian Creed. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith, Catholic being universal. Um, anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now, this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity, Trinity in unity. That is one of my favorite definitions of the Trinity. One God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Neither blending the persons, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Holy Spirit is not the Son or the Father, right? Nor dividing their essence. Each persons are fully God. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another. And that of the Holy Spirit is another. But the divinity of the Father and the Holy Spirit is one. They have the same nature. They all have the same nature. Their glory equal. Their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, the Holy Spirit has. Whatever the Father has, the Holy Spirit has, the Son has. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. The Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father immeasurable, the Son immeasurable, the Holy Spirit immeasurable. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet, there are not three eternal beings. There are not three eternal beings. Because that would mean what? Three gods. Okay? But there is one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. The Father did not create the Son. The Son did not create the Holy Spirit. There is but one uncreated and unmeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is Almighty, the Son Almighty, the Holy Spirit is Almighty. Yet there are not three Almighty beings, but one Almighty being. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, there is one God. Thus the Father is the Lord, the Son is the Lord, the Holy Spirit is the Lord. Yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. Along with the Athanasian Creed, we have the Nicene Creed which clearly and precisely lays out and defends the doctrine of the Trinity as it is taught in the Bible. This is the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all that is, is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God. Hear this, very light of very light. God from God, very light of very light. True God, from true God, begotten, not made. For, go, for those who think that begotten means that uh, you make something, um, that's not what it means in, in, the, in a spiritual sense. One being with the Father, though through him all things were made. And, and if you want, you can read on the um, Nicene Creed. So you can see that the early church had their hands full. Did they not? They had their hands full with, with heretics and false teachers who crept in, who crept, who were, who didn't creep inside the church, but who were in the church. They were spreading false doctrine. 
spreading false heresy. They had their hands full in defending the doctrine of the Trinity against heretics and false teachers. However, we must be reminded of the words of Christ in Matthew sixteen eighteen, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In light of all those heretics in the early church, Christ will build his church. Christ will build his church. Christ will build his church. And what we see post-apostolic era is creeds and confessions formulating that bear witness to what the scriptures say about the being of God, as well as piggybacking off the creeds that came before. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, paragraph 3. In the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power and eternity. God the Father, the, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. The Belgic Confession, Article 8. In keeping with this truth and the Word of God, we believe in one God who is one single essence, one single being, in whom there are three persons, really, truly, and eternally distinct, according to according to their incommunicable properties. According to, they are distinct according to their personal properties, basically. Namely, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In our own Confession of Faith, the 1689 says this, In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences. It's a more, it's a, it's a more technical way of saying persons. It's actually more precise. The Father, the Father, the Word, or the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The one substance, power, and eternity each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. Each are God, yet you do not divide that one God in their being. Um, you divide them by persons. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite without beginning. Therefore, but one God who is not, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished. By several, by several relative properties and personal relations. And I love, I love the ending of our confession. Hear what they say here about the doctrine of God, which the doctrine of God is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on him. So they give you, they give you the doctrine of God and then they give you the application or they give you the doctrine of the Trinity and they give you an application of the Trinity, which we'll talk about next week. So here we see from the historical basis of the doctrine of the Trinity, um, the early church had to defend with all their strength and with all their might this doctrine. Later, our Reformed forefathers pinned in the confessions to make it plain and clear that there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In closing, the doctrine of the Trinity, as mysterious as it may be, and as difficult as it may be to wrap our minds around and to fully comprehend, is the biblical witness of Scripture. I, I, I don't think about this. I, I, can't, I, I can't make this up. <laughs> but I'm, I'm forced to think this way because Scripture, because Scripture tells me and reveals to me who God is. We are forced by Scripture alone, as well as the whole of Scripture, sola scriptura and tota scriptura, to believe in the Trinity. The Trinity is a biblical doctrine. The Trinity is a biblical doctrine because it is, that, because it is in that belief, the Trinity, as our confession says, we have communion with God and dependence, comfortable dependence on him. Let us end with this. Holy, holy, holy 
Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our songs shall rise to thee, holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful time. I pray that your Holy Spirit help make sense of who you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.